This is the AI Artifacts Podcast. I'm your co-host, Brian Warmoth, with Sarah Luger, PhD, and we are back again to go beyond the hype, under the hood, and into the fray to see what's happening in AI this week. Hello again. This is Brian Warmoth. I am here today with a short AI news recap for you. Sarah and I will be back together for our normal co-coverage in episode 12. So, A few things happen. We'll share these links in the show notes for you. One thing that intersects with something we've been talking about recently was OpenAI revealed the volume of enterprise clients that it has been serving. It turns out it has 260 businesses, and among them, 150,000 employees are users. Those are seats that the service is serving for enterprise clients. We don't know exactly who they are all around, but we do know that ChatGPT team tier customers include Block, Canva, Carlyle, the Estee Lauder companies, PwC, and Zapier. Now, uh, for me, this is clear evidence that this brand has first mover advantage. Right now, it is a brand that got out there ahead of other competing AI services from the other big tech companies. This will be something to watch in the year ahead to see how permanent the service becomes in the tech stacks and tools that these companies adopt. But keep your eye on that for enterprise adoption, which is something Sarah's very concerned about, particularly on this cast, and thinks will be a big area of growth for AI software in 2024. There's a New York Times article out this week that we'll link to. It's about state-level action on AI regulation, uh, a rare topic of bipartisan support, as we saw in in the coverage here. I'll I'll quote from the article. It says, at the beginning of 2023, only California and Texas had enacted laws related to the regulation of artificial intelligence in campaign advertising, according to Public Citizen, an advocacy group tracking the bills. Since then, Washington, Minnesota, and Michigan have passed laws with strong bipartisan support requiring that any ads made with the use of artificial intelligence disclose that fact. I think that's a great standard. I'm also encouraged to see that people are reaching across the aisle and working with each other on these bills in an age where partisan divides tend to be barriers to getting things done on multiple levels of government in the United States. I'd also say that AI fraud and robocalls is a very worrisome place where attention is at right now, and obviously people are looking for solutions. We just talked last week about a contest to find people who might be able to combat this uh, form of fraud, and in elections, it's particularly worrisome. Uh, One more link I'll add here, and I add this as a George Carlin fan who sampled the the audio in, in question, uh, which is accompanied by a video that includes images here. But uh, the, the article here I'll be linking to is from Polygon. George Carlin's daughter, the famous comedian's daughter, uh, says that she is not a fan of a new AI comedy special that uses a synthesized version of George Carlin's voice to tell jokes with, uh, you know, there's a sl- sort of a slideshow of, of images created. Basically what happened here was a couple of, people with the there's a team it's called dudesy is the brand they published this under uh, they, they created a synthesized ai comedy special in george carlin's voice making jokes about modern topics i would not say to me it was anywhere near as funny as listening to a, a george carlin comedy special but uh, it raises some questions about use of likenesses and 
synthesized likenesses in this case using AI to make a you know, somewhat convincing uh, version of, of George Carlin that if you listen to it, you might listen. I heard it and you know, it, it, it sounds very, very similar. I wouldn't say that's 100% convincing. The longer you hear it, the more little ticks may show up that make you, would make the average person, I think, the average person question whether they're listening to a real recording of George Carlin. But obviously the man died years ago and is not aware was not aware at the time of many of the topics that are brought up in this audio comedy special. But I'll read from his daughter, uh, Kelly Carlin's statement. In, in the statement she, she shared, uh, she wrote the, in the name of this comedy special, I should say, would be, is, I'm glad I'm dead. She wrote, my statement regarding the AI-generated George Carlin special, my dad spent a lifetime perfecting his craft from his very human life, brain, and imagination. No machine will ever replace his genius. These AI-generated products are clever attempts trying to recreate a mind that will never exist again. Let's let the artist's work speak for itself. Humans are so afraid of the void that we can't let what has fallen into it stay there. Here's an idea. How about we give some actual living human comedians a listen to? But if you want to listen to the genuine George Carlin, he has 14 specials that you can find anywhere. I don't know. Personally, I heard this and it just made me more conscious of the fact not that anybody would care or want to do this when I pass on, but it definitely makes you think about what limits a person might be able to leave or should be able to leave in their will and testament when they pass away about what can be done with their likeness in, you know, contexts like this. All right. That's our big rundown for the news this week. This is what we've been talking about off the cast. I will now turn you over to a wonderful interview that Sarah and I performed a few days ago. And we are back for episode 11 of the AI Artifacts podcast. Sarah, who are we talking to today? We are talking to David Talbot, PhD. David is joining us from Inceptive, where he is one of the founding team. This is a Silicon Valley-based startup that is applying generative AI to the design of RNA molecules. Before joining Inceptive, David led the NLP research and product teams at Yandex, a Russian search engine. Before Yandex, he was a research scientist at Google, working on Google Translate and early versions of the Google Home platform. But I know him best as he was a PhD student in informatics from the University of Edinburgh with me and an undergraduate in Russian and French literature from Oxford. I was not with him on that part of his journey. It is with <laughs> keen affection that we welcome David to our podcast. Welcome. It's David. a Thank you so much, So it's, it's a real pleasure to be here. Nice to meet you, Brian. That's great, David. Thanks for joining us. You, I've heard a lot about you. I'm excited to get into this because your field within AI that you're working in right now is not a place I've talked to a lot of people from previously. So why don't you start off by telling us a little bit about how your career got to this point and what Inceptive does? Yeah, sure. I'd be happy to try to explain a little bit about how I got into to RNA. So the, the, I guess the last 10, 15 years of statistical approaches to language, so machine learning, what's called AI, generative AI. One of the really 
prominent trends there has been the, the same, that the, the, a lot of the technology has become quite standardized, or at least a lot of the same underlying algorithms and approaches are now used across many different problems. So when I first, so when I was doing my PhD back with, with Sarah in the early 2000s, you could have discussed, so I was working on NLP, so text-based applications, and I could have discussed what I was working on with people doing speech recognition, but we were really using totally different stacks. We were building lots of these things ourselves. It was really highly engineered and very, very complicated, to be honest. We were using data, but the data wasn't like the primary thing, maybe, or maybe the the algorithms were not, we we weren't spotting the commonalities in the algorithms. And like over the last 15 years, for sure, the algorithms used to solve problems like speech recognition, speech synthesis, image recognition, machine translation, all of these are basically running on very, very similar algorithms. And it's clear that these algorithms are not specific for those problems. So you can start to think about taking what you've learned working on on, on language problems and using that for completely different applications. So what's the path like for getting it to that specialized yeah. output instead of a I mean, do you, do you have to, what's the bridge to getting from so, that general product to some, to having a system that gets you the specialized yeah. output you need? Yeah. So, so, so what we're working on, let me, let me actually get mm-hmm. a bit more concrete about yeah, what we work on at Inceptive. I think, I think that probably make it easier to explain. Mm-hmm. So, Inceptive, uh, we're designing RNA molecules. So RNA molecules, probably from high school, people learn about DNA. It's like the the genome. It's got all the information needed to describe all the things that need to be built in your body. Mm-hmm. RNA is like the the, the 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 maybe the sort of slightly overlooked cousin of of DNA that does a lot of the heavy lifting in the body. And it's the RNA molecules are just a sequence of nucleotides. So they're, they're, they're these long molecules from hundreds to thousands of, of, of nucleotides long. And one really interesting thing that they do is they build proteins in the body. So this, I'm, I know I'm going along, it sounds like this is a long No, they, me, they right? show, so, they help you, they help the proteins to, they produce new proteins. There are the... They produce new yeah, proteins. they're the instructions exactly. for building a new protein yeah. in a specific yeah. way, right? Yeah. Am I, exactly. I have that right? So it's been a while MR, since I was in high school biology. That, that, yeah. No, that's, to, that, that's <laughs> totally right. So M- mRNA are a really important class of RNA, and they're a class that we're working on a lot. So mm. mRNA, probably people have heard about them from, the, from the, 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 the COVID vaccines, from the pandemic. mRNA is actually thought of as a coding molecule. So people talk, biologists talk about the coding sequence. And what they mean is you've got these triplets of nucleotides. So a sequence of three different letters, say AUG. And each of those three, they translate into a protein building block, which is called an amino acid. So basically it's kind of like a translation problem. Mm-hmm. So you've got a you've got an mRNA that translates into a protein. So it from a kind of really basic level, ignoring all the messiness of biology, you can see why if you're trying to design RNA molecules that you might start to apply techniques from machine translation models that can go from sequences to sequences. Is it fair to characterize that AI strength is seeing patterns and results that 
a human might have overlooked and it might discover those more quickly. Yeah. And that's that's how everything comes together. And that's where the utility comes from. That, yeah, I think that's probably that's 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 definitely the biggest part. I think. Yeah. So how is how is what have you seen, say, with AI for so let's 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 go to machine translation because I know sure. a lot about that. Yeah. So machine translation, the history of machine translation is that you used to try to write rules and have dictionaries, and they like in the fifties, people were building these very complicated rule-based systems with linguists, grammars. They would work on very, very simple examples. They never really scaled up to real language. And the last 20 years, people I mean, in Google Translate, I saw a lot of this using more and more data. The more data you could train these models on, the the fewer rules you needed. And actually, the more data you had, the less you really had to understand how translation works. So apologies to any linguists here, but kind of like when you've got when you've got tons of data, you really rely much less on any any real sort of understanding of, of the data. You just can model it in its pure form. And maybe that's because any rules that you had or any like sort of like sort of conceptual model you wanted to try to impose on the data will always be a sort of an approximation. So allowing the model just to capture all the regularities is like the biggest lesson, I think, of the last sort of 20 years of machine learning. Sarah, I hope you didn't Um, take any offense to that as somebody with a... No, no. And in fact, I I think the way I try to explain um, this is, is, Brian, you're you're totally right with your, your notion of of say rules, but when you think about language, it has a directionality, right? Like it does have mm-hmm. certain patterns. Yeah. And so that's why in the past we tried to match and align one language to another. And the problem was, is that you would, e- you would either overfit or completely unidentify unseen words because you had to have these pattern matching based on all the words you had seen before. Language is dynamic but it does have certain patterns and the ability to deal with flexible new information is something that current modeling, large language model-based word embeddings, you know, all of this sort of sequence understanding really does well. So if you think yeah. about language as having a pattern with a subject, an object, a verb, certain types of words drop into certain slots, think of biological things, you know, like RNA, like mRNA yeah. in the same way. There are some rules, but there is also a bit of flexibility and generative opportunity there. Because if you take enough data, then the model will will see that rule and we won't necessarily see it because, as you said, Ryan, of the scale and the speed and the intuition that it is that it is bringing inside and then producing for the next uh, item it's generating. Yeah. Let me yeah, take, that, I want to take a step back and, and get so, to something about instructive sure. too. So yeah, how would you yeah. characterize most succinctly what problems you solve with the output that you get? How would you yeah, characterize okay. that? So we are helping our partners take like d- design therapeutics. So okay. RNA is a modality for delivering in, in the most obvious case, things such as vaccines. Right. So proteins. So vaccines in this case are actually just a, a easy to understand space. Usually. Yeah. I was just trying to put that out there for anybody yeah. who might've gotten lost in yeah. the science. Yeah. Here's what we get on the other end yeah. of this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So there's obviously a huge amount of interest in RNA, mRNA for vaccines. Especially since COVID, as you were just are... saying, it's it's been in headlines. Exactly. And I bet there yeah. are a lot of people yeah. who heard about yeah. our mRNA for the first time in their lives or since high school, since 
the you know the yeah. COVID research. Yeah, totally since high school. Was going totally. through that. Yeah, that was definitely. Yeah. I was definitely one of those. I had not. Yeah. I I had not thought deeply about RNA or an mRNA. I remember, I, I think I probably had to look up what was the M. So the M is messenger because it's passing the message from the DNA and it builds the protein. But just to get like the, the very specific computational problem we solve is that, so for, for, for partners of ours who, who may be pharm, uh, pharmaceutical companies or biotech companies, they may have identified some 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 disease that requires some protein it could be a vaccine like i said or it could be something else it could be maybe a protein replacement or something and they're now getting quite excited about using using mrna to deliver that they may not be experts in rna i mean i think it's fair to say there aren't that many experts in this field right now it's very very nascent and there's a lot to be learned it's a good place um, to have a startup but there's exactly yeah. yeah and there's a place for for a company to to specialize in understanding, so just I, I don't want to make this too too technical, but once once a a company who's developing a therapeutic know that they need a particular protein, that's not the end of the of the end of the of, of, of they don't know exactly what RNA they're going to use. There's actually a huge space of possible RNAs that they could use to code for the same protein, and that's the problem we really solve. So the computational problem is you, you've got a protein, so you know that you've got to have this particular amino acid here and this one here. But for each of those, there's a choice of a few different um, nucleotides. And it's a small set for each one. But when you have thousands of these together, the space is just ginormous. It's you know bigger than the number of atoms in the universe. Like that, The number of combinations are just impossible for... Exactly. Like, exactly. To, to put into a human workflow of discovery at a reasonable pace to find the combination that does what you need, right? Is that accurate? Yeah, exactly. That's exactly it. And there's two different problems which people have been running into. So... Mm -hmm. When you want to take a medicine to, 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 to the clinic, one of the most important things is, like, obviously you want the medicine to work, so it should do whatever it is. I would like my to medicines do, to work. Yeah, definitely. You know, that's, that's not a bad starting point. Yeah. yeah. But another thing which is often a problem is you want it to work at a dosage which doesn't have other side effects. Hmm. And so... What does that mean? It means you'd actually like to give as low a dose as possible. Optimally yeah. minimum. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and although this huge space of different RNAs, so let's say we've got a partner who says, yeah, I want you to produce this particular protein. I'm like, okay, there's you know a huge space of different RNAs. There, there, there'll be two different ways, at least right now, that we're really focused on, two problems they'll face. One is that the the RNA that they that they may have designed themselves might not produce enough of the protein. It might it should produce the correct one, but it might just not be very good at it. And why is that? There's many different theories around that. Lots of research, but it's very difficult to predict. So if you you've got two different RNA that would code for the same protein, one might produce a lot of protein, one might hardly produce any. So that's that's an obvious area which we can optimize for. So we will. We will build models of RNAs and we'll, we'll build those models based on measurements of protein expression. We have our own lab. And to actually to, to get to the question, like maybe about like why Inceptive, mm -hmm. the exciting thing about Inceptive was that they bringing together, they're bringing together people who have done amazing fundamental research on the algorithm side. So one of the co-founders, Jakob Buskreit, 
is one of the main authors on the attention is all you need paper. So really transformational algorithmic work applied all over the place um, these days. Yeah, the transformer. But also we have a lab and we generate tons of data and we train on that data and we evaluate the outputs of our model in that lab. And it's like there's a lot of companies, I think, who are doing AI drug discovery. What, what's an, may... Can you tell me what's an example of the type of data Sorry. produced through your work in the lab? Like what? Yeah. What? When you okay, say you're generating data. Yeah. With, I mean, without yeah, getting deep sure. into the details, could you yeah, characterize sure, like sure. what does that mean that you're generating data in your lab? Yeah. OK. So, so say we're solving the problem of finding a good RNA for for protein expression mm-hmm. so well, one that will produce a decent amount of protein mm-hmm. what we can do is we can generate a huge number of different rna mm-hmm. molecules which will design a whole load yeah. which um, maybe using our current model which all code for the same protein and then somehow we'll run an experiment where we measure how much protein each of those different molecules actually produced I see. so it's just yeah, it's like generating it's generating training data that's one mm-hmm. way of using mm-hmm. it so the two the, yeah the, just just to go back a couple of steps the, mm-hmm. the the two problems which really affect these drugs are stability of the molecules yeah. so mrna covid vaccines were not available to most of the world because they needed to be transported at minus 80 uh, Celsius. So that's really cold mm-hmm. it's really actually quite hard to transport at that temperature even within, say, the United States or Western Europe, but there's many parts of the world where it's just infeasible completely. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the problems we try to look at is which of these molecules is a bit more, a bit less, a bit more stable. Okay. And that's that's something that we, 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 we look at. Another thing we look at is the protein expression. So one that would give a good amount of protein or maybe one that would produce the right, like maybe maybe there's a particular use case that our partner has in mind where they need a really short but big burst of protein expression. They don't want it to be hanging around for too long. It, it really just depends on what they're using it for. But in all of these cases, like the interactions between the RNA and the cell is so complicated that trying to like manually or sort of... Doing a like, one-off sort yeah, of... It's just yeah. like, it's kind yeah. of obvious that you just not... The space is just too big. You're not going to find... You're getting keyhole you, size you, views into... Yeah, Results, yeah, right? Yeah. Yes. So generating lot. Go, sorry. <laughs> are you saying? Are you saying that you have to use software engineering and computer science approaches to? <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, kind of. <laughs> yeah, exactly. To perhaps mitigate some of the challenges of historical approaches to biological nucleotide sequence replication. Yeah, and, and I think well, there's two things. We so let's just. I, I would love to talk about this concept we have, which is. <laughs> biological software but maybe that's let's just we'll leave that for a moment there's the whole idea of using machine learning for science so this is we're we're all scientists we're scientists coming from machine learning backgrounds data science from biology chemistry so inceptive brings together a really diverse group of of scientists and we really we really espouse this this way of working across different disciplines we we call it we have this fancy word for it anti-discipline which i think there's only a couple of hits for this on the on the on the on the on the internet but basically it's the idea Uh, that listeners let's keep those hits low the idea is that you that we're working on something slightly new and that there will be a discipline and there'll be a name for what we're doing and it's not just ai and it's not just RNA biology. It's a really a combination of the two. 
And to give you an, an example of why it's not either of, of, of these two existing fields and something new, the like when a biologist does an experiment, usually they have a hypothesis. They want to say something like, oh, I believe that if I change, there's some connection between this molecule and this molecule, and it does this thing. And they'll test that hypothesis. Yeah? And they're trying to understand pathways and connections between things in the body. We, we're not taking that approach. We're trying to generate tons of data, train a model, and have the model make predictions. We may be able to inspect that model and say that we can understand something about what's actually happening in the cells, but that's really not the main goal. And I would claim that's probably not a great use of our time. So it's really like kind of really espousing this black box model of machine learning and just saying, get as much data as you can to that characterizes how RNA functions in, in the cells and use that data to then make predictions and then design things. So, so when a partner comes to you, how would you characterize yeah. how much time is saved on their part from how a traditional process would have gone to get to the phase where you have, I don't know, a molecule when they get yeah. they have like, now we have a molecule to test in our, our labs or whatever. I don't know. Characterize for me what happens there and what's been saved for their part of the process by doing that. That's a really good question. So I think I think it's a bit difficult to say in general terms okay. because yeah. these at this, at this point fair. in RNA in the, in the application of RNA is very new. So mm -hmm. many parts you don't have a long history. Have, yeah, I see. Yeah, yeah, and and but what what I can say is that we're doing most of the the wet lab experiments ahead of time to mm -hmm. generate training data, and that generally means that for the for an actual application when i say an application you come with a protein you say hey we want we want this protein it needs to be super stable and produce a load of protein okay we'll run our model and then we will still do some wet lab experiments but the number of wet lab experiments we have to do at that point when we're actually offering our partnership will be way way less so it's 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 i mean i don't try i'm trying to think if you could make an analogy to like it's a bit say say an nlp would you well, like faster, the difference between, yeah well the difference how, between how like the machine translation that? yeah but machine translation and human translation yeah. so i guess it's not quite Blue the scores same versus actual human uh, quality and naturalness evaluation. well we have okay just one thing that's quite nice about this field <laughs> is we do have reasonably good metrics for evaluating how our molecules perform so they're, they're not cheap to run. You have to, you have to evaluate them in the lab, but there is, you know, we, we have pretty standardized experimental protocols. Can you do that before you deliver your product? Because one thing you did mention is that to some degree, this data generation is quite mm -hmm. somewhat black box. And since you are in the healthcare realm, is that evaluation something that can be done before you deliver to a... Um, customer so that and and where does yeah. like regulation or oversight kind of fit yeah. in that continuum yeah that's a huge that's it <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot there so uh, when i say black box when, when, I, when i say black box really what i meant is that we're not trying to get scientific insights about what's going on yeah the scientific insights we get will be much more around machine learning and around how to better generate data they're not about what are the interactions in the cell because as long as you know, it's, it's first, well, it's a bit like I mean, like like Google Translate trained on tons and tons of, of data from all over the all all, all all of the internet. 
at the end of the day, if it produces really good translations, you don't care whether you can describe the grammar of the languages. Like there's no grammar in, in Google Translate today, I'm sure. When I was yeah. like last there, like what, 10 years ago, they were getting rid of the last bits. <laughs> and, yeah. But, but, but if but, I remember, but, yeah. Go on. Let, me, let me just interject to say, if I remember yeah. correctly, about 13 years ago, 12 years ago was also when Google Translate's evaluation, its quality of its translations were starting to go down. And that is because you were in part retranslating previously translated data. So I just want to throw out well, there that you are doing yeah. a breadth first approach for, yep. for Inceptive. And I fully stand behind this company. But there are some challenges with having a lot of generated data out there. And I wonder if, if there are any perils in your space with that's, synthetic data. That's interesting, yeah. So it, yeah, in, so in machine translation, we were actually quite worried about this problem. Once we started training on all of the data on the internet, this was been over 10 years ago now at Google, we actually wrote a paper. So it's one of the, I think it's the only paper, me and Jakob, who's one of the co-founders of Inceptive, we, we, we've known each other since we were interns at, at Google. But I think this is probably the only paper which we we are both on. And it's a paper describing how to fingerprint, like leave a an invisible watermark in translations such that afterwards, if those translations are put all over the internet and you pick them up for training data, you're like, hey, this looks like one of our translations. Don't train on it. That's fascinating. And actually, that's the kind. Of, how does that? I yeah, mean, it is. How does that even valuable today? Is that even explainable? Yeah, yeah, I, that, in a way? I'm going to understand how that watermark works on the data. It's not like just an extra wait. column somewhere that says, "Hey, here's where this data came from. None. These are the rules." Right? None. So it's basically like rather than always taking the very best translation according to your model, you know, like today, this is actually quite common with things like ChatGPT. I think you can get it to sample different different outputs yeah mm -hmm. and you just choose an output that it's a little bit technical but you put it through a hash function you get a number out mm -hmm. and you make sure that those numbers don't look quite like random anyway that yeah okay. this is a little bit technical but okay. but but it's yeah there's a paper <laughs> somewhere there's a paper and we will put it in the in the notes in the okay. podcast notes but i also just wanted to note how i think that this challenge of generating data in, in the past, it was for translation scraping the web, but this mm -hmm. is something that we've seen. We, Brian and I have kind of acknowledged that we're a bit of a data-centric AI podcast, and so other folks who have chatted yeah. with us have talked about the um, poisoning the well of online data, and I was just thinking about it in terms of maybe some of the the fact that you that you all with your nucleotide replication are generate first. Okay, so, so yeah, let's let's think about it a bit because. The thing is, for, for, a pro for a problem like machine translation, you really want to train on human translations, I think. At least still, that's probably the case. And you hope to find those on the internet. The problem we're trying to solve, which you could simply maybe just call it protein to RNA translation. There is public data that you could use. There are lots of experiments doing what's called RNA seq seq RNA sequencing, which maybe may that, that there are lots of data around RNA. It's not really obvious how you use that data. Yes, so we have to generate a huge amount of data ourselves. Does that 
cause problems for us? Of us? I mean, we're always aware of what is our data. It's not really like we don't have this problem of identifying what is ours and what isn't. It's quite it's quite easy for us to keep track of that. So it's not it's not really that that tricky. And another thing to say is that RNA therapeutics in most cases will be artificial RNA. So for example, the COVID vaccine, the COVID vaccine is an artificial RNA in the sense that it was, co it was designed to code for the COVID spike protein, which is not a protein that your body naturally produces. Yeah. The idea is to give your body a little bit of the protein. So it sees it. It's like, Hey, this doesn't look right. It, it built, it, it, it generates antibodies. And then when you get the real COVID vaccine, covid virus if, if 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 that happens you're already well prepared for it sarah i don't know if you had anything else you want to bring up. i've got really like two big things i wanted to for sure please ask please david i have i about. have a couple yeah please go well david maybe like i should ask this one first what has jumping into this field illuminated for you in terms of how this technology works and how do you see your field differently than you did before coming into yeah. RNA therapeutics and molecule generation. Yeah, that's a great question. It's been super. It's been really eye-opening. Eye mm -hmm. I've so I a lot of the the technology behind AI, generative AI, was mm -hmm. developed in big tech companies, mm -hmm. and for better or worse, they've applied those to a relatively narrow set of applications. Yeah. And so the opportunity to do something like this, which you know, I, I love doing machine translation. I felt that was a super useful application, helping people communicate. But it does feel like there's there's some amazing potential in applying machine learning to a problem where you can potentially save lives. Hmm. Now, from a kind of almost like from a I've learned so much in the last two years. So I've been with Inceptive yeah. since basically since the beginning, just hmm. over two years ago, yeah. and. What I've enjoyed the most is how much I've learned. And I definitely do not have a good, I still don't have a good um, biology background, but I've been able to work with these amazing people and ask them so many different questions about how they understand the biology of the cell, RNA, and look at so much data. And really what I've, I think what, what's really exciting for me is that I think what we're doing at Inceptive, I would expect that approach to doing science to be replicated in many, many different places. So I'm really excited about the potential for machine learning, AI, to become an integral part of, of science, like so, so scientific research. So not, not at all limited to RNA, but you know any scientific domain which, which, which does experiments and can generate data, people... People must be using ML. And I'm sure it's happening a lot in many different places. I'm just really, really excited about that. That's what it's really done for me. I hope that answers your question. It does. It does. Well, David is not the only person uh, expert from the natural language processing realm who has also taken many of these technologies. And as he said earlier, you know, we in this field have had word embeddings, vectorized data, some of these under, underlying fundamental approaches have been the foundational building blocks for much of what we've done. And it's great to see them taken within these high-tech companies, the, the hyperscalers, as we call them on, on this podcast, and really uh, refined 
optimized and you know currently being used in pretty pretty small very specific domains and to chat with you and and learn about broader applications of some of this foundational technology. Regina Barcelet at MIT is also notable in this field, and she turned from NLP and AI to more biomedical after suffering from breast cancer and saying almost, you know, to the T what you had said, what I was doing was the most important, most emergent technology with NLP and AI. And then I realized that I could use that, that, people who are working on, on life-saving technologies did not have this information and that I could share that with them. And you mentioned Daphne Kohler. This is definitely yeah. an area where, where thought leaders are gravitating. Do you, you know, where, where do you see this moving in terms of, you mentioned earlier, biological software? There seems to be several components. That was a fascinating word. I, I do want to hear more about what that means. Yeah. I think that many things that some of our listeners might take for granted as computer scientists, you're really trying to bridge in a couple different dimensions. So could you speak a little more on that? Sure. No, I, I'd like to. I'd like to try anyway. So biological software, our, the mission of Inceptive, our mission is to positively impact everyone through biological software. And by, by biological software, it's it's something of a metaphor for us, but basically... I think there's a few different levels on which we, we're thinking about what we're doing as biological software. Firstly, just very simply, RNA is kind of like a code. I mean, people talk about coding RNA. This is a term that biologists already use. So you can think of these long molecules as describing some program, which which is kind of how to print a protein. So it's like the hello world of, of RNA is printing a protein. But we need something slightly more than just using RNA. Because yeah, what, what, we're, what we're looking at is software, taking the approaches of software. So that means modularity, precision, being able to, for instance, in the, in the world of software, if you change the code slightly, you change one of the functions, you expect to understand how your, your software is going to behave. Yeah? So we're using machine learning in some senses to reverse engineer how RNA is working in the cells such that we can make these precision changes to the molecules and with a high degree of precision predict what the outcome will be. So that's kind of this, this idea of software. There's also the interesting the interesting sort of sort of colorally, what's the right word, but like as, as it sort of falls out from this is that you the business side of software. So software costs usually a lot to develop or can. But once you've got it, it can actually be very cheap and possibly free to, to, to reproduce and to reuse. And I think there's an aspect in which what we're doing by building a, a big model that can predict to design RNA molecules, the there's huge upfront costs. Yeah, and we're well funded at the moment, but there's, there's huge upfront costs to getting the data and to getting the models that can actually do this. But once that's there, you can keep on reusing this model and the costs for each time of using it go down. So it's kind of that, that model of, 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 of reuse that you see in, in software, which is not typical in, in biotech, very, very common model in biotech. And I was a little bit surprised by this, but I guess it, it's very standard is that a biotech company will usually focus on one or two molecules they usually call them assets and they'll spend a huge amount of time getting those through a pipeline mm -hmm. um, what we're trying to do is really focus on the things which are generalizable 
we don't want to just go after one molecule or one vaccine. We, we really want to go after the, the, the generalizable model. Um, so that's, that's why we refer to it as biological software. Very cool. If uh, someone listening would like to learn more about your company, we will include the Inceptive web address in our notes. But I just wanted to, yeah, we'll, we'll make sure that you get the good word out. But I just wanted to ask, where is the company? What are you doing in the Bay Area this week? What is What makes this week special? Our listeners may not be already aware that David and Sarah and I are in relatively close proximity. Sarah and David in closer proximity because he's here <laughs> in San Francisco this weekend as we record yeah. this. Great. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm uh, Inceptive. We have our, our main lab um, in Palo Alto. So I was here last week visiting the lab. And this week, there's a big bio conference, JPM. It's a very new experience for me, so I'm not sure exactly what to expect, but it's a big a big event in the, in the bio business calendar. So I'm hoping to meet with a lot of potential partners, existing partners, people we're having conversations with. And yeah, so if anybody's listening to this and wants to meet, then I'd be very happy. Well, uh, by the time they hear it, you will have already me. made your visit, I believe. We're recording this about a week ahead okay. of publication, uh, so uh, okay. do keep that in mind. Okay. Yeah. And, and David, I don't believe you have a Patagonia vest. So you might be, <laughs> I might you might go, out. yes, you might stand out or go undetected okay. either way. Okay. But just, but just to answer the, we actually have, so about half of the company. Do you own any all birds? Do you own all birds? No, I'm, no, I don't even know what that is. <laughs> okay. About Good half job. of that. answer. Talking about the, okay. the uniform <laughs> for these things. Yeah, it's right. There's still yeah. time. There's still time to buy one, I hope. Uh, we have about half of our company are remote. So. Yeah, we're sort of we're hi- we're very hybrid. Yeah, excellent. And you'll be talking to investors, partners at the yeah. J.P. Morgan conference yeah. this week. Is there any other topics that you'd like to broach before we bid you adieu let and you let you get on to breakfast for to the frolic. day? Yeah. <laughs> no, I think we've covered everything. I was I was hoping to 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 get across. So that's I really enjoyed this. That's Thanks cool. So Thank much, you guys. so much for doing this, Dave. This is really enlightening. I I appreciate you expanding the the breadth of AI topics we've been able to introduce here in the podcast. And this is an exciting one. I look forward to hearing more about what you do going forward with this. Thanks a lot, Brian. Congratulations. That's it for this week's episode of the AI Artifacts podcast. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope that you'll visit us on AIartifacts.net. There, you can subscribe to our Substack show notes newsletter and discuss anything you just heard. If you like what we're doing we'd love for you to subscribe to this podcast and rate us on your platform of choice the show is produced by brian warmuth and sarah luger our visual design work is from Corey scarin and scarin design the music on the show is from vanishing horizon by jason shaw and is used under a creative commons attribution 3.0 united states license